Hi, hello, and welcome to This Is Not The Show That You Expect Me To Say It Is. This is Ultra Cuties. This is the new thing. This is a new show that I'm doing with one of my good friends. But who am I? Who is that friend? Hi, I'm, I'm Preston. <laughs> I, you, th- you threw me off with Ultra Cuties. I... <laughs> I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Do you want to start at the top? Do you want to start at the top? This is, I I think this is it. This is it? Oh, no. Oh, fuck. All right. I love it. No, this this is is great. No, we're we're going. No, this is it. This is the show. This is, this is what this always was. Hi, who am I? I'm Madeline Blondo. You may know me or may not from Mercado Punchy or may know me or may not from Cinema Cauldron. You may know me or may not from getting fired for the game from the gamer or many other bylines I have across the internet. I do all kinds of shit. Who's with me on this call? Hi, I'm Preston. I am, uh, you might know me from uh, Rocketo Punchy or, um, that's it. <laughs> oh, come on. You've done other stuff. I've done other stuff. I, um, I, I... The anime lockdown, right? That's what it was. We did anime lockdown. Absolutely. Yeah, we did that two years in a row. Yeah, that was fun. That's where I feel like a lot of my Twitter following came from, was just doing that hentai panel. Oh, same. I feel like I met a lot of people after doing that, who I'm, I'm really grateful to know now, but I also just... I think sometimes, like, you know me, you follow me, we talk occasionally, we have this distant parasocial relationship, all because you listen to us talk about porn for two hours. One hour, two hours, I forget. And I think that's really funny. But, you know, we're not going to talk about that uh, on this show anyway. No, 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 no. I don't think there's much crossover with pornography in the subject. <laughs> I think that, well, you would be surprised, and like, not in terms of Ultra Q, but like, there's a lot of tokusatsu porn, but we don't have time to get into that. Maybe we will later, but not right now. So I am, I'm very familiar, but, but we, let's <laughs> digress. <laughs> I love La Blue Girl. What? Anyway, so <clears throat> this is kind of the first step of a new thing that Preston and I are doing together. And that's just kind of kind of be the evolution of what Raketo Punchy was for all the years that it was on. Uh, we are going to kind of wax and wane depending on like who's a guest, what subject we're covering, whatever, right? We're still kind of in the embryonic growth process of this thing, but we've kind of been planning it off and on for what, mm-hmm. a year now? And so this is kind of the first step of that. And the first step of this is going to be a 14-episode miniseries, because this is going to be the format that we do from here on out, okay? One of my problems with Rakoto Punchy, frankly, is that we got too unfocused sometimes throughout the making of that show. So I really want people who follow this week to week to have something they can rely on. And so that's why we're adopting this new format, which is a not a new format at all. It's a listen-along format. Yeah, I know. Everyone loves watch-along podcasts. We're doing one, too. So... We wanted to kick things off with something that's one of Preston's favorite things to sort of get our bearings straight and uh, talk about something I don't feel like there's a ton of companion podcasts for and just sort of throw our hat in the ring and discover this show together. So Preston, why don't you tell us a little more about Ultra Q, which is what we're going to be watching for this first series, Ultra Cuties. Well, Ultra Q came out in a really pivotal time in uh, Japanese uh, television cinema history. It's 1966. This was called the Kaiju Boom. It's 1966 to 1967. Um, Kaiju Boom was basically every major production house had some Kaiju Ega or Kaiju adjacent film or television series in the works. Uh, It was so short-lived mostly because of Ultra Q. Um, Ultra Q spawned what would be the television boom for a decade. Kind of overshadowed the film industry for a really long time. Um, A.G. Subaraya was the father of Ultra Q. Uh, He worked on Toho for years and years and years on the Godzilla franchise, Rodan, Mothra, uh, War of the Gargantuas, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Just hit after hit oh just all those are kind of classics like every single one is a banger oh for sure and after a while ag superaya wanted to work on television 
and created uh, Subaraya uh, Productions. Um, this was along with his sons. He, oh, I didn't uh, know. When the show was first being uh, brought into being, it was kind of an idea to do something more like Twilight Zone. Didn't have really monsters involved with it. But um, the uh, financiers at the time that were producing the show wanted more giant monsters in it. Um, and as it went on, they kept putting more and more monsters and less and less of the kind of sci-fi ghosts and like X-Files sort of storylines that would that yeah. were originally kind of the, the framework for Ultra Q. Um, this show is so influential that it uh, spawned the Ultra series. It had a resurgence in the 80s with a sequel series. Had a movie. And on top of that, uh, in 2014, I want to say, there was a sequel series for the 50th anniversary called uh, Ultra, Ultra Q, Neo Ultra Q. Uh-huh. Um, and in these were put out on television and then theatrically shown uh, mm-hmm. alongside colorized versions of the original Ultra series. Which is which is how I actually ended up seeing, watching these last two episodes that were these last two, these first two episodes we watched because I, uh, I watched them on YouTube even though I have the Blu-rays and the my, my, my Blu-ray drive wasn't working. It's a long story, don't ask. So I watched them on YouTube and they were in color and Preston was telling me, hey, the, the black and white photography in this is, is incredible. This, this is so distinct. Look at this monochrome. And I'm like, uh, I just see a bunch of really muddy yellows and greens, but all right. So that's how that happened. That's how those were made then. Oh, yeah. Um, the, also, uh, this was shot in 35 millimeter, which was unheard of at the time. Uh, most television shows were saw, shot in 16 millimeter. Um, this was at the time the largest, most expensive Japanese television production, and it shows. It feels like uh, Godzilla episode or Godzilla movies condensed down to 20 minutes, uh, which we'll go yeah. into, especially with the first episode. Yeah, totally. I think what really impressed me with this is that 35mm film stock adds a lot to, as you said, the cinematic flair. And certainly you can sort of see this as like a harbinger for like what would happen to the Japanese film industry because it wasn't like a bunch of 16mm cameras getting conscripted into doing television. All of a sudden you had a lot of film crews, directors, everyone kind of taking this film stock and applying it to television, sort of like depleting those resources from the film industry, which sort of like, you know, led to it being in the vulnerable state it was in the 70s where more like exploitation movies thrived as opposed to like, you know, quote unquote cinema. And I think it's really interesting that Ultra Q like kind of precipitated this, kind of kicked this off just by making that choice to bring a big scale 35 millimeter kaiju thing to to the house that was as you said was very unheard of and it like had this really big long tail that i i don't think was anticipated oh for sure and i mean without ultra q we don't have the uh the giant hero boom we don't have common rider we don't have super sentai we don't have a good portion of tokusatsu where Godzilla is definitely the birth of, you know, the the, the tokusatsu film. Uh, I mean, you can probably trace it back even further than that. But um, at least in the modern sense. Uh, Ultra Q is the birth of tokusatsu television. And yeah. previous tokusatsu television shows in Japan. Where there is just, you know, you have shows like Moonlight Mask. Or... Um, Oh my goodness, um, Messenger of Allah, uh, shows that came out prior that were kind of hero-driven or special effects-driven, but I don't think they had nearly as big of an impact as, say, Ultra Q does in any way, shape, or form. No, absolutely not. And I I think it's really cool that Ultra Q kind of sits at this, like, uh... <laughs> 
Rosetta Stone status almost for understanding like entire genres and how entire uh, entire mediums changed course in a historical level. Um, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Preston, we watched the first two episodes of, of this fine, fine show, and we're going to talk about them today. So for those of you listening along at home, uh, if you want to watch Ultra Q, it is readily available. Mill Creek put some pretty decent uh, Blu-ray sets out. I believe we we have a steel book. I believe the steel books are still pretty available for for Ultra Q. Um, it is streaming elsewhere. I believe is it on Tubi? Is Ultra Q on Tubi? Fact check it me is on that. On Tubi. Okay, all right, it's on Tubi. That's awesome. So if you want to watch along at home, that's something you can do. And if you buy the Blu-ray set, you will also get this Ultra Q episode guide, which we are going to be drawing from a little bit, along with some other resources Preston's going to uh, bring in. So that's where you can watch Ultra Q. And without further ado, Preston, give us a tip off. Tell us what this first episode is about. Set a scene, set a mood. So first episode is called Defeat Gomez. Uh, is, the setup is there, uh, there's construction work doing uh, being made for a super railway, uh, an underground railway system. And uh, the, the the uh, construction workers have discovered a mysterious stone, and one of the construction workers claims to have seen a monster in the the depths of the of the construction work. Uh, this monster turns out to be Gomez, and the stone turns out to be an egg for a monster called Litra. And a young boy points out to uh, an old prophecy that these two monsters are destined to fight each other. And uh, there is kind of a build-up uh, before Litra hatches to uh, Gomez uh, kind of terrorizing the, the countryside. And uh, we, it's kind of a, a wait-and-see for, for when Litra shows up to finally fight Gomez. Totally. Yeah. I, I think you, you mentioned wait and see. And I, I think that one of the things that stood out to me most about this episode was that like subterranean hunt, like how much of this episode took place under underground in a cavern. Right. It's very like minimal set work for a genre already. I think that was like you were expecting a big city. You were expecting something like huge to get taken down. And instead, it's it's very claustrophobic. Right. Oh yeah, no. I you I believe you pointed that out when we were watching it. Uh, that it's very, it's very unheard of to have this kind of claustrophobia in the Kaijuego, something where you're usually in a big field or you're in a big city, and there's that like sense of scale. There isn't. Uh, there's almost a minimalism to to the Gomez episode where you're in these caverns, you're in these claustrophobic areas, you're in these, you know, places where you don't usually see a giant monster. Uh, the only movie I could compare it to uh, from A.G. Subaraya's past work was Rodan. Uh, remind me of the scenes in Rodan where they're in the caverns and they have the, oh gosh, the Meganulions. I think that's the name of the monster. I think so, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it it's such a unique setting um and it's such a great first episode especially since you it gives you also some some familiarity uh these move these tv shows uh would recycle a lot of toho suits so there's it gomez has kind of a familiar feeling to him because it's an old godzilla suit um yeah litra is uh an old rodan puppet uh everything kind of fits in this this sort of wonderful familiar place when you're watching yeah. it so you know when you're going in oh this is like Godzilla or this is like a uh the the kaiju guy that you'd watch previously when you're watching yeah. ultra q i think there's like a a cynical way to look at this enterprise which i think a lot of people do of like you know laughing at the fact that they're recycling these suits but you look at a Godzilla suit that's that's sitting in storage that might not be getting actively used for a Godzilla film and so like what 
do you want a filmmaker to do with that? What do you want an effects director to do with that? But to slap some extra fangs on it, slap some new fabric on it, reshape it a little bit, give it a beak, give it some feathers, and you know, call it something mm-hmm. else, right? It it is. I I don't. I think you are right. It is. It creates a sense of fam- uh, familiarity. But I also think it just shows this like level of craftsmanship to take these very familiar monsters that within the decade had become so iconic in Japan and turn them into something new and put them on television. There is like some kind of a audaciousness and a admirable craft work to that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, I agree. Um, and it, changing them so much that they in turn become iconic monsters themselves. Like Gomez especially is a reoccurring staple in the Ultra series. Ultraman and a ton of other Ultramen have fought Gomez in the past, and it's um, it's kind of admirable to take something that like Godzilla and be able to make something new and iconic out of Godzilla in that sense. I um, I can't really think of many like icons in film that have had that luxury, you know, taking something and and retooling it to be something just as iconic or something that has a legacy of its own um it's is it's something just to marvel at for sure yeah it's it's kind of wild to think that like when this came out you know there were that by that point there were already like vinyl toys of japan of uh of like a godzilla that were kind of being decimated through japan like the kind of iconic small vinyl toys that we think of right like in the 60s those were kind of already in active production right mm-hmm. oh sofa b yes um yes yes yeah, sofa and so it's really interesting to think around this time like a kid could be watching ultra q on tv with their godzilla sofa b and then 40 years later they could just buy some sort of like a nostalgia sofa b release of that gomez thing that was a redesign of the the very toy they were holding as a child there's this level of like lineage and pedigree that like reusing something and creating something iconic like that creates and like it kind of creates this like you said familiarity to it right and oh, yeah. i think it speaks a lot to subaraya's like uh i think it speaks a lot to subaraya's like ingenuity that he was able to do that with a creation like godzilla because let's be real if you were to tell most effects designers hey take godzilla's design but add just a few things to it to convince people it's not Godzilla. They would have a really hard time. That is not an easy task. Oh, for sure. I mean, even um, not to not to get to uh, to ahead, but uh, in Ultraman, there's a monster called Giras, and it's literally just Godzilla with frills, and that's it. Like, there's nothing. There's no. There's nothing. You know, grander than than the design. It's it's just. Oh, it's Godzilla, but he's got like this like kind of frilly neck thing. And where Gomez, there's so much detail. There's little details throughout. Where yeah, like if you showed me Gomez, I I know which one's Gomez. I know which one's Godzilla. But um, I can't say that so much about Giras. But um. I, I it's something that I I love that the legacy of Gomez has continued into that like that knowledge of that it was once a Godzilla suit. Uh, there's an episode of Ultraman X where uh, they it's was aired during Godzilla Day, which is uh, November third, I believe, and uh, they just made they gave him like an atomic breath. They gave it uh, the same Godzilla stomp sound effects that were from the original Toho movie. Um, oh, little wow. Little things like that. Uh, even more recent, Shin Ultraman, uh, the beginning of Shin Ultraman shows Gomez, but it's the Shin Godzilla uh, rigging. But they just added features to it to make it look like uh, Gomez. Um all, this episode is so like memorable because of Gomez, but also because it some it's so even beyond like the monster, the this the the shots the the thirty five millimeter black and white, uh, just there isn't a whole lot of kaiju film that's shot in thirty five millimeter black and white. Like you've got nineteen fifty four Gojira. You've got Godzilla Raids Again. You've got the first Gamera movie. And not a whole lot else, at least in giant monster films. 
So to have an entire series and to yeah. start your series with this and to be shot as beautifully as this is just something to marvel at. Absolutely. And I I think that like the effect of this was pretty immediate. Like we mentioned this kind of at the top of the episode, but like when this aired, like this sort of had a ripple effect really fast, just this first episode, right? Like, I did, was was there not like a, a huge a huge draw in viewership that you said? I don't know mm-hmm. if you said it before we started recording or not, but... Yes, the, it had a 35 share, which means that of the televisions, 35% of televisions were watching. I believe that's right. Or it's, it's yeah. it might be like Nielsen ratings where it's 35,000 people are watching or I, yeah. I i'm not too sure how japanese ratings are measured but either or that is a lot of people to just tune in and watch this series and uh there's stories yeah. i've i've read where like ag super I would then would after an episode would frequent where kids were and would see what how kids reacted to the episode um, there's a story oh, wow. where he heard a group of boys walking home and talking about how they it's just amazing they can go home and watch monster uh, giant monsters like this was so revolutionary in how it was taking something that was exclusively film only and bringing it to the small screen nobody was doing this yes. Yeah. Earlier you brought up Twilight Zone, and I think that Twilight Zone and the show that it kind of inspired after that, Star Trek, kind of had like a similar impact on American audiences. Like at the time, it was kind of uncommon to be able to go home and watch a small-scale horror movie. And then when Star Trek came out, it was uncommon to be able to go home and watch science fiction like with like really, for the time, impressive makeup and costuming miniature work, right? And Mm. you sort of see a similar ripple effect to what Twilight Zone and what Star Trek had in America to what Ultra Q did in Japan, right? Oh yeah, and it's it's incredible that they happened so close together. Like Twilight Zone especially was just is one of those things that like not only was influential for me as a kid growing up, but was influential in like bringing science fiction pulp stories to the small screen written by at the time sci-fi pulp writers and it's ultra q is in a lot of, is in the same vein as that it's yeah. also taking sci-fi pulp stories and bringing them to the small screen the only difference is that it, because it was ag super because he had this legacy of of godzilla that we i think if we the shareholders of the show didn't pressure giant monsters in i don't know if ultraman would even been a thing it's interesting to think about how much of like corporate art is that way it's like it's a suggestion of somebody of a producer or an executive going this needs to sell better so do this and that's something that like as artists you know you don't like to hear and you don't like to work with because it feels like shit but every once in a while there is a producer that demands that you put something in here or an editor that says something needs to be here and that tee off accidentally is the thing that makes it like catch on and like lets you be able to do more of that thing right right no exactly um i mean opposite to uh when ultraman came out the uh the original pitch was that it was going to be a monster named bimlar that was going to be the hero and then it switched uh to ultraman i think mid-production and I don't, I don't remember if that was a, if that was a producer choice or if that was a, if that was Superaya, going no, I don't want to do a, a friendly monster, uh, story, which I I think is kind of nice that Ultra Q doesn't have that we have focal characters, but they're not you know like a monster or anything like that or like a giant hero. They're just average everyday people. Like yeah. one's a news reporter. Uh, one of them's a helicopter pilot. Like they're just, they're just everyday folks. 
Yeah, it reminds me a lot. It's very, I'm sorry to make a cross a cross media comparison, but they're a Godzilla comic, so it's fine. Uh, Ultra Q reminds me a lot of this Marvel miniseries called The Marvels that I really liked back in the day. That is mm -hmm. like from the perspective of this guy who is like aging and is just a normal everyday human who like sees the heroes at the different phases of their existence through his life, right? And it's this really cool on the ground perspective of what the superheroes are doing from the perspective of, you know, that guy over there on the sidewalk, right? And similarly, I think Ultra Q does a really good job, like similarly to the Godzilla series of like uh, centering these characters who are just everyday people, who are journalists, who are kind of like middle management bureaucrats, who are just like, I don't know, sometimes a guy and making that the central perspective that you that you see uh and i think for ultra cute especially works because you know these are small scale stories with smaller sets on a smaller scale for a uh you know a smaller setting which is tv so mm -hmm. i think tapping into that more human storytelling and really leaning on that and really making the human reaction to what the monsters are doing is a uh, a really smart choice from the series perspective, right? Oh, for sure. So in terms of Defeat Gomez, you, we, we recapped the plot. We kind of talked a little bit about what else. Are there any other bits of trivia, little factoids, things about this episode that you want to go into? Things that you liked that you want to talk about? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, besides, we, we went into great detail about the the recycled suits. Um, I One thing I, I really like is the the one and done nature of the episode it feels very cinematic but it feels very it feels like it has a film structure even though it's 20 minutes there is definitely an a b and c yeah. kind of <clears throat> flow to it um it you could show this episode and you don't have to give any context to it and you could introduce someone to ultra q pretty much instantly of what the premises um yeah. it explains Absolutely. what this show is going to be really well um which i can't say every pilot episode of a tv show does extremely well no um i i i would say that was probably my, my biggest takeaway from it i think that's a good takeaway is you mentioned three-act structure, and I'm thinking back on that episode, and you're right. And how many TV shows, especially from that era, can we point to that has something that feels that distinct, especially that's made on film stock? Like, that is truly unique. And you mentioned the finality of the ending, and I think that was the last thing that I wanted to say, is the episode kind of had this sort of, like, subterranean adventure vibe, like we said. It was claustrophobic. It was kind of told through caverns and inside of rooms of people talking about this thing that's in the cavern. And it didn't really feel like an aggressive downer. And then you kind of had the fight. You had Leecher show up and kind of peck at Gomez and like, you know, the monster was vanquished. And then it ends on this very ambivalent note that sort of just makes you feel bad about everything that just happened. That makes you feel bad about Gomez being vanquished. That makes you feel sort of not like you just watched a cool big punchy fight but that you watch two living creatures kind of fend for their lives against each other and i mm -hmm. think that's sort of a tone that permeates through the show and one of the things i like most about ultra q is that this doesn't feel like rubber suited monsters ever it feels like i i don't want to say flesh and blood because i don't know if all of them have flesh but like these like flesh and blood fights that have stakes to them with these living creatures that are given empathy and not just turned into you know puppets to slam against each other and i really like that about the ending of this first episode that you care about the fight that just happened and you care about gomez and uh i think there's almost like a sadness to like when uh when it gets its eye pecked out right oh for sure and even like at the end where litra is uh lying dead on top of gomez it's not this you know woohoo we did it there's this somberness to the ending Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a very effective first episode. I really like it. And I, I think that's all we have to say about episode one of Ultra Q, Defeat Gomez, unless, unless I'm wrong, unless you have anything else. Oh, no, I have nothing else. All right. Well, I think it's time to, uh, to do some monkey shines because we have another episode for you. And it might be... <clears throat> 
my segue stuck. I have not fucking recorded with another human in ages. So let's try that good. again, Preston. <laughs> it's all right. Hey, see, this is this is why this is why editing exists. <clears throat> so the next episode of Ultra Q also has a familiar face, and I think it's a little more obvious than uh, Gomez. Preston, why don't you tell us a little more about episode two? Episode two, Goro and Goro, is an episode about Goro, a giant monkey who has been altered by a potion. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember the name oh. of the potion. Um, the monkey magic potion. The monkey magic potion. The Aoba potion. Uh, the Aoba potion, of course. So it has gigantism. And it's just a giant monkey that is terrorizing the countryside who is befriended by a local named Goro. So it's Goro and Goro. And uh, they formed a kinship with each other, but everyone is terrified of the monkey Goro and are also kind of ambivalent towards the, the young man Goro who is always kind of stealing food to feed Goro. Um, there is kind of a sadness to this one. Um, oh, yeah. At, at the end. But uh, just just like the first episode. But uh, it follows our three protagonists. Uh, Ipe. This episode uh, is one of my favorites. I... I genuinely love how the relationship to, between the two Goros is shown. It's very loving. Um, yeah. There's kind of this wonderful charm to the the suit performance of Goro, um, which is just a King Kong suit where they slapped a monkey tail on. <laughs> um, and I love the... This is, we focus more on our three leads that we're going to be focusing on throughout the show. Uh, Yuriko, Ipe, and Jun. And mm-hmm. I love the dynamic they set up with all three of them. Um, I love the, the, I love the adventure that they have to go through mm-hmm. to, to, you know, save the city from Goro. Um, it's, it's just, just such a wonderful episode. Yeah, it really is just like you, you mentioned it being really sad. And I, I think that's the thing that I took away most, like when the credits are rolling is that like more so than the first episode, the ending here is a real gut punch because as all giant monster stories, the giant monster is vanquished. But when you spend an entire story fostering a connection between, you know, a human and a monster and that monster is sort of laying there in a heap at the end right he's he's being like tranquilized to be taken somewhere right is what yeah, it was he gonna, wasn't like killed they're gonna take him to africa i believe because they find that there's another giant uh giant monkey in africa yeah. because june uh finds that there's or yuriko actually finds that there's uh, another uh there's another monkey that they're gonna go and have it live with but you feel sad for for human goro who's gotta like say goodbye to his only friend because you spend this entire time with him and nobody likes goro except goro like nobody wants to have the time of day for goro and you just kind of feel really sad he's like oh well yeah he's gonna go live off with this you know other giant monkey but yeah, what's what's human Goro gonna do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is he just going to continue to be this like seemingly near do well that like nobody likes? Like he he's lost his only friend, and that's sort of like the sadness I think that we're left with. Which is like to 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 pivot into the King Kong suit. By the way, uh, can you specify what King Kong movie is this this suit is from? Oh, King Kong versus Godzilla. I didn't know if it was I what okay so did King Kong lives or returns or what was escapes? the other what was the Rankin Bass one King Kong escapes Yeah yeah was that the same suit from that or was that a different suit in that one 
Um, it might be the same suit from King Kong Escapes. I'm trying to remember when that came out. It would have been, been 60 some like 65, 66, something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, it would make sense. It would make sense if they had like one King Kong suit. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Um, that they use for all the things. Uh, but but jokes aside, like this is sort of where this is a better narrative than the thing that came before it. Because in the case of King Kong, I love the original King Kong, but you there's some unfortunate unfortunate racial politics, shall we say, of that film. Uh-huh. And I think in I think if you were to apply those racial politics to this episode, which I don't even think necessarily are here, I just think if you want to read that analog into here, you ultimately have this like story of an outsider who was brought here and then cast out by society, and then the only person that this guy feels like he can relate to is 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 taken away from him, right? And so even if you interrogate it from the the original really like racial analog of the very thing that it's using a suit from this episode's actually just like very very empathetic and very kind and very mournful and i i really enjoy that when held up against the actual king kong oh for sure i it, it's a, it's a it's in many ways kind of a, a better like story you know <laughs> <laughs> kind of yeah yeah yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> Just a bit. I know we're breaking new ground here. I'm breaking new ground here by saying King Kong is racist. Nobody's ever done that before in a podcast. Nobody's um, ever pointed that out. No one's ever. No one's ever pointed it out. Who had a uh, more uh, more credentials to say that than us? Clearly. Um, <laughs> joking aside, that's one thing I really like about this episode is is that empathy, is that kindness uh, that you pointed out is these two Goros finding each other. I also just think that the Goro suit is so funny because it's not even like a Gomez or Leecher situation where they made like a lot of alterations. It's like, yeah, you can tell that's Godzilla. Yeah, you can tell that that's Rodan. But like, you can like, you have to look. With this, the glance value is, oh, that's King Kong. Oh, he has a tail. It must not be. No, it's definitely more a cheer ass situation where it's like, oh, that that's just that's just King Kong. Um, it's it's it's, but it's nice. It's like seeing an old friend, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I love it's it. So fun. <laughs> um, I have the. I think I have the unpopular. I I think this would like get me driven out of any popular circle of that discusses film, but. I think the Godzilla versus King Kong movie and King Kong Escapes and the 70s King Kong are like the only good King Kong movies. And I think that like, I don't know, I think that this era of King Kong is is the best one, the 60s. I think the 60s with the rubber suit King Kong stuff coming out of Japan was like all pretty cool. And like, I would lump this in with that because it's also a fucking King Kong suit. They just couldn't legally call it King Kong. I I can't believe it, but I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> you can't believe I, it? <laughs> I can't believe it. Because I was like, no, that can't be right. And then I thought about it, and I was like, no, yeah, that is really the fun. That is the, you know, the, the De- Deus de Laurento Kong, and then King Kong vs. Godzilla. I'm like, yeah, yeah, those are the fun ones. Those are the, those are the ones I enjoy the most. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I think at some point it would be very fun to to go through all of the King Kong movies on a on a cast and then throw this episode in the middle of all of them. Like, okay, we talked about all the King Kongs leading up to this, but let's revisit this episode and see how we uh, we want to hold it up against the other King Kong movies. Oh. We should do that. <laughs> I would be really interested uh. to sit through the Peter Jackson one again because I uh, I turned it off. I tried to rewatch it fairly recently and I turned it off because. One, the motion blurring on the fights is so bad that it made me, like, it's nauseous. Rough. It's not good. Oh, yeah. And the blackface was just terrible. I was just stunned by the amount of blackface that was in that movie <laughs> that came out I, when I, I was in high that. school. 
I did know that that like was blackface until you told me the other week because I was like, it's a movie made in 2006. There's no way that Peter Jackson would have just done blackface, right? And the answer is yes, there is a way because he did it. <laughs> he was drunk <laughs> off Lord of the Rings power and he could do whatever he wanted. And he said, I want blackface. Yeah, he's like, I can just slap enough makeup on somebody and make him into an orc. And I, as a white person, really, what's the difference between that and this indigenous tribe I'm making up? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but we're getting way off topic. Uh, oh, Ultra no. Q. This episode, this episode is not, hey, this episode is not Peter Jackson's King Kong. It's way That's better. That's true. That's true. <laughs> See that we're see we're greasing the groove, Preston. We're getting back into it. We're getting this. back into it. We're getting, we're, we're doing our jokes. <laughs> you look like you're dying inside. <laughs> I am dying inside. Oh my god! If gosh. you think about it, we're all dying inside slowly. That's true. Right now. Second by second. So we should talk more about uh, about Ultra Q. What else about this episode I really liked was the actual King Kong bits were like, they're very small scale. You know, it was a city block with a bit with like three buildings and some cars. But, you know, shrink that city block down with some cars down to a like circa 1966 black and white television. That might as well have been outside the door. Right. Oh, like that yeah. was something that we can like pick and him and haw at now in terms of like the production. But like for what they were doing on the scale they were working on, which is this thing we keep coming back to, this just is kind of a sublime thing that hadn't been done on television before in America or Japan or anywhere else. This replicating a big city block and putting a giant monster on it and letting it run loose. There was no program in America that was doing that. And we like to kind of deify the institution of American television a lot, but I don't think there was an American producer, director, or crew that had the audacity to do what is done in the last second, like the last half of this episode, oh, right? Sure. Like it's really I, impressive. It's, for some, especially during when like, Toho was they were starting to do the field Godzilla movies and getting away from doing cityscapes. It's yeah. kind of awesome to see Goro and Goro and see this like scale down, but still it's a cityscape. There's building power lines and it's just so wonderful. There's something I love the tactileness of it. it whereas yeah. the first episode, you know, was definitely a field fight. Um, this one has more of that classical, you know, that classical cityscape that we would see in something like Godzilla that we don't, at the time, kids weren't seeing as much anymore. And that's something really wonderful totally. to note. Like, oh man, I, I, I think that was something I, I kind of brightened up for when we, we were watching it was just, you know, turning in and seeing the city and the the model sets and i'll i'll clap anytime i see a model city like it's just the best oh yeah same every time i see a tiny car that can get picked up by a guy in a suit i am like about to pop off like that that is me at my most excited every time that happens i see a tiny car that's about oh, to get sure. stomped on <laughs> it's so fun like and i think like you don't see something like this in here but like you know, I really love like tiny trains and tokusatsu sets, right? Like these like little like you see it in the first Godzilla movie, right? The like the very first one, like there is that above ground railway that Godzilla just absolutely decimates. And obviously, like me saying this, I'm not taking away the gravity of this being a haunting parable for, you know, nuclear war. However, it is really objectively fucking cool when Godzilla destroys a railway and a tiny train flies off a rail. Like, that's just awesome. Oh, that's sure. really cool. It, it's impressive that somebody built that, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, I mean, it's it's the it's the the hand the handcrafted part of it that's so appealing and i think what makes the genre itself so appealing is that tokusatsu that is mostly handcrafted even today like 
you can go and watch the latest Ultraman, Ultraman Blazar, and they're still making model cities that are have monsters wrecking them. It's just it's a part of the DNA of the genre. Absolutely. And I think that there's something and I'm going to get I won't get too lost in the weeds with this one, but I think that there's something very countercultural about it when you think about the fact that a lot of the creatives that were working on these in the 60s, they knew what cityscapes that were ruined Mm -hmm. looked like. They had experienced that in their lifetime because of us. And instead of like they got this chance to build these small cities and wreck them on their own terms and put them back together in this controlled environment and use anything that they wanted to to sort of explain why that was happening and build stories around that. And I think that there's some sort of like really beautiful, raw political catharsis to that. And I think that doesn't get talked about enough when you think about like miniature work and old tokusatsu. It's like how many of those creators were crafting and destroying from experience of what they had seen happen to their homes and homes around them and cities around them. And that is so inexorably part of tokusatsu DNA. And you see it right here in this second episode of Ultra Q. And it's so cool. When you look at tokusatsu as a whole is, a, I mean, from Godzilla to to Ultraman, that's the DNA of of it is the is is kind of the catharsis of the tragedy right yeah absolutely absolutely and meanwhile we're making a biopic about the guy that did it (laughs) but you know what's not oppenheimer is ultra q episode two and i i i like this episode quite a bit i think it is a it is a very good kong story it is a very or a not kong story as it were it's a very good episode of ultra q it is a very good city block getting decimated and it is a very good human connection to monster story which i am always a sucker for so episode two of the show i think the first the first duo of ultra q is just a one-two punch mm-hmm. like right out of the gate like if you were watching this back to back week to week when it aired i i can't imagine the treat that it would have been to get godzilla one week and get king kong the next and then what's after that you're looking forward to everything after that because they just gave you godzilla and king kong like within a week of each other of on tv yeah and that's like, amazing it is it's the two big titans they are back to back and how amazing that must have been to be a kid in the 60s and go i got to watch a godzilla like episode and then the next episode i got a king kong like episode like that's mind-blowing that would blow your mind if you oh, were a sure. kid watching it back then, right? I think it's it's something that we take for granted now. Oh, but, yeah. like, man, that... They had it good. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, was, that was peak... That was peak tokusatsu, was experiencing that, like, on, on, on the ground floor. On the ground floor. Um... And you know, I I, th- I could think of I could think of no audience more deserving of something so fucking cool, after everything. <laughs> oh, for sure. So yeah, Ultraman, Ultra Q. We're not on Ultraman yet. Ultraman came after. Maybe we'll talk about that one day. But right now, we're talking about Ultra Q, and we just finished talking about the first two episodes, folks. I would say this is going to be how every episode goes. But let's be honest. We're getting back in the saddle. We're shaking off a little rust. We're going to be kind of changing some things as we move along. We're going to be kind of like figuring out our groove. And we just ask for you to stick with us and maybe watch along. Maybe check out some Ultra Q. It's free. It's literally if you watch some commercials for, hey, what's a commercial on Tubi, Preston? Give me a commercial on Tubi that you hate. Uh, hey, hey, my clothes are stinky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's just you just have to listen to some like you have to listen to suburban mom or dad say hey my clothes are stinky five times in a row and then you get to watch free ultra q and i think that's a fair deal <laughs> <laughs> um but folks in all seriousness i really appreciate you tuning into this first episode we are going to be doing 14 of these because there are 28 episodes of ultra q we're going to do two episodes per 
And from there, we're going to listen to your feedback. We're going to see how you support us and listen along the way. Uh, please give us feedback. Please comment. Please ask us to do things. Please just let us know that you're listening. Uh, one of the best parts of For Kiddo Punchy was just always knowing that people were tuning in and asking us to check things out that they that they liked and or they didn't like or wanted to hear our perspective on. And um, I really want to kind of have that from the ground floor. So we're launching this on Substack. If you're listening to this, you're probably on the Substack. If not, you're probably on a podcast feed on your app. But basically, Substack is going to be the main way we release this show. We're going to put out a new episode once every one or two weeks. And along the way, we are going to post little blogs. We're going to, once we get a production pipeline ready, we're going to maybe make episodes available for people who want to subscribe, as well as start working on some premium content like... Uh, commentary tracks for movies and stuff down the line but right now we are trying to make a really good 14 episode show talking about ultra q that you can watch anytime and listen to anytime as a companion so that's what we're setting out to do first and foremost that's what we're gonna do this has been ultra cuties my name is madeline blondo you can find me on twitter at vhs Vivich, or you can find me on blue Sky blue Sky blue Sky at blue Sky blue i said it again we're gonna do this again <clears throat> This has been Ultra Cuties. I'm Madeline Blondo. You can follow me on Twitter at VHSVivich. You can also follow me on Blue Sky at Mads.house. And you can subscribe to my Substack, which is madshouse.substack.com. Preston, where can people find you? Hi. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Robotechnology. And uh, my Substack, which I have now forgotten what my Substack is. I think it's just Preston McFarlane. I think you can just find me as Preston McFarlane on Substack. Professional. No, that's professional. That's clean. That's crisp. I like that. <laughs> I had to get fancy with it. I, ha I had to get ostentatious with it. <laughs> Folks, thank you so much for tuning into this first episode. And Preston, thanks for doing this. I'm excited to watch the show with you. Same. I'm also excited to watch this show with you. I'm excited to record a podcast with you. Let's see how we can fuck it up. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, until next time, everybody. Have a good one. Do, do we have a sign off? How do we sign this off? We, we, we're, we're starting from scratch. S we just say bye later. Stay fresh, ultra cuties. <laughs> yeah. Stay fresh, ultra cuties. <laughs> bye. <laughs> <laughs>